Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Danya Williams. We have an awesome, awesome book club meeting today. If y'all didn't read <laughs> this book, I'm telling you, you still got like, you could read it in like 10 minutes because it's only like a hundred and something pages. And it's awesome. <laughs> and read it while we're going. So considering I was a little bit rude and I was so excited to have Rick on the show, I I, I did momentarily forget myself and introduced him. Would you That's like okay. To, would, would you like to introduce the book? <laughs> no, well, okay. <laughs> now, well, see, now I'm not even ready. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, the name of the book is called Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd Infantry, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, basically the book is by Susie King Taylor and she was a woman born in slavery and she literally was spent four years in camp with the 33rd Infantry, originally known as the first South Carolina Volunteer Infantry. That's what they were known as, as first, at first. And um, she spent four years with these men traveling with them throughout the civil war and it is an awesome book the book is about mm -hmm. just what she recollects and what she knows and it's an awesome book so one of the reasons i mean there are a couple of reasons why i was really excited for us to have this as a as our book club um especially for this season so as you said it you know it is um it's an easy read um you can basically sit down, you know, it's easy in terms of the way it's written, the language that's used. Um, this is one of the first books that we've covered that I didn't feel like I needed to put it down because it was just traumatic to read. Um, so there was that. And the other one is it really does cover a period of history that we don't, as a country, really talk about. And that's, well, actually, it's after, right after um, Reconstruction. She touches on it a little bit. But basically, in terms of our history, we either get slavery and then we get Jim Crow and we have those decades in between that really don't get touched on. And she just does such a brilliant job in terms of writing about her experiences, both in the Civil War and then the period afterwards. Um, and she touches on things that, you know, I came away learning quite a bit that I didn't really know about the period. So I love that. And then as we get into the show later, she really does kind of bring up concepts and histories and relations between black and white that echo, literally echo. You could take the words that she wrote and not and put say, it in today. And put it in today without a year that they were written. And people would immediately start thinking of certain situations that have, that have happened in the country. Most definitely, most definitely. But funnily enough, Donnie and I are such a team that we actually, I think 90% of the, the pages that we want to talk about were the same pages. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> they were basically kind of talking about the same thing. But we hope that all of you who have read the book, you know, enjoyed it as much as we did, came away with it, came away with new information the way that we, we did, and kind of got you thinking about the past. So... The way she opened up this book just stole my heart because she gave hmm. a mini a mini genealogy in two pages, and I I knew that that really resonated with you. It did, it did. Um, I definitely enjoyed how she was able to go back, which is something that we as Black people, in most instances, we don't get the opportunity to know these people, let alone know their history or where they came from. She put that that whole thing to bed because she talked about not just her grandmother or her great grandmother but she talked about a great great grandmother and she was able to really give you an a good genealogy of her ancestry uh, you know of her roots where she came from what their names was when they were born so if anybody in here um has uh roots with some with with this with this line of of people if you haven't read it you need to pick it up and look at it even just for the first two pages alone because she gives you a great start a great start um kia the name of the book is reminisce uh, i said it wrong reminiscences <laughs> yeah reminiscences <laughs> of my life in camp 
with the 33rd United States Colored Troop, late first South Carolina volunteers. Yeah. And there is a link to the free PDF download, because this is an old book, um, with the show promotion, with the little, with the show promotion flyer. So you can, you can download it and read it. And we will also share it at some point. I'm getting ready to do that now. (laughs) So, because while we were in the green room, I was saying that um, American chattel slavery did its best to destroy that kind of sense of family, the sense of, you know, what people an enslaved person came from. But we know that that's not the case for for every enslaved family because, Donna, you you know, you and I have seen our family kind of in situ from generation to generation. Well, not only that, Brian, it also opens up the fact that, you know, those stories that we've been, that, that we've been told about how, or those, those things that people assume today about black people and them not helping each other. She puts a, she puts a hole in that too. Yep. You know, the fact that she could say that my two times great grandmother came from Virginia, you know, she knew her name, that she was 120 that her great-grandmother or grandmother lived to be a hundred. She knew her, you know, she just had that lineal descent. And it reminded me of something that Rick actually said on the show last week about what a matriarchal society African-Americans descend from. Uh And she clearly knew who her father was and who the men in her lineage were because she calls them out in the book. But it's always, she always kind of gears more towards the matrilineal side i don't know it just set off something that rick said about that just the the light bulb went off in this little mini chronology that that she gave yeah Um, yeah i agree and going on so that's that's the opening that's chapter one that's right there on the first page um come page seven the thing that i loved was she's talking about her grandmother so first of all we had a question she was born enslaved then this thing happens where and Again, a lot of this in terms of Georgia takes place in two places, Savannah and St. Simon's Island, which ironically enough, I've been researching for about the last three years now. So there's a a family called Grest who appear to be their their enslavers, or at least her enslavers, because she does say that she is born under the laws of slavery. But then for whatever reason, when she's seven and she has a brother, his age isn't given, her grandmother actually takes them to Savannah with the Grest's permission. So that's a question that you and I have was, was someone, her grandmother for all intents and purposes seems to be a free woman of color. Um, And, you know, we had the question, well, when did they stop being enslaved? When did they become free? Was, was someone manumitted? Was her grandmother manumitted? Right. So there, there are little gaps in this history that, that haven't been filled in that did leave us with questions. But the reason why I'm coming back to her grandmother is on page seven. This is the thing that, again, just warmed my heart because we are told, we've given a litany about what Black people in America are like. We're shiftless. We're lazy. We're stupid. We don't, we don't know how to do for ourselves. Well, her grandmother, bless her, and she was she was a woman of a certain age at this point. She's getting up, getting out there, going to visit her daughter, and selling things like eggs, chickens, um, things that she had to for either trade or for cash. And in her lifetime, her grandmother socked away three thousand dollars. This is the 1860s. Went into the Freedmen's Bank, which unfortunately she lost all of that money because it got it got taken but i have to hand it to sis you know you're an elderly woman you've clearly been saving and scrimping your whole life and you were able to save through selling meat produce chickens all that kind of stuff thirty thousand dollars but let's 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 be clear on something she didn't even sell all of it Mm, some of it was an overall trade She was trading. She was doing goods. So sometimes like she took the tobacco and stuff like that, took it to a different market 
and was trading for eggs and things and then took the eggs to another market and then sold those eggs or then trade she was it was a constant it was a constant moving back and forth and trading and man the the intelligence that it has to take if you ever this is another reason why i always say you are your ancestors wildest dream because they to be them you had to be able to think like them don't sit up here and think that they were stupid or that they were dumb because they were not these people were doing things that right now we have to be taught to do and they were already doing it they they just they did it out of just already knowing so to be able to 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 go through and do what this woman did just her grandmother we're not even talking about Susie yet just her grandmother to know what her grandmother did and how she kept things going she actually said in the book she made a good living she she literally made those words <laughs> you know and they did it with not much and that's again that's that's the history of our people we do incredible things with not much exactly and y'all you need to know miss 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 taylor miss 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 susie she died in 1902 so i need y'all to understand the time period that we're talking about that this stuff happened all around the time that people was nowadays the kids today they dog our ancestors and talk about them and saying, oh, I'm not my ancestors. Don't get it twisted. Blah, 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 blah. That's what they say. This woman, you want to be her because she was the epitome of an entrepreneurial person. So, yes. She was indeed. <clears throat> and clearly providing for more than one generation of her family. So, again, so starting in Chapter 2, so we're still really early in the book. Again, um, she's talking about how she was born under the slave law. She, the Susie was born in 1848. Um, she was brought up by her grandmother in Savannah. Her mother was in the picture, but doing something else. Um, so three, her and her two of her siblings lived with her grandmother. Then she had other siblings that, that lived with someone else. And I'm just getting to it. And it's literally on that first page of chapter two. Um, oh, it's... The other theme that really popped out for me was the importance of education. And I think I've said that in pretty much every book that, we, that we've covered. But it's right here. You know, they're, you know, in Savannah, they are illicitly being taught how to read and write. And not just her and her siblings. How many were there, Donnie? Was there about 40. 30 of them? 40 of them. 40. And the way they went into class is that they went in one by one. They they went into this woman's household. So basically, grandma um, was teach got her children uh, educated. She there was a woman who was teaching these kids, but she wasn't just teaching her two grandchildren. Those four, those it was other kids that was coming in, but they had to walk in one by one. So when people saw them going in there, they thought that they were learning a trade because it was always comfortable for them to learn a trade during that time period. And and that's what made it, you know, really, I, I'm, again, you cannot, this was just, an, this. Now, that was some balls. <laughs> that's the best way you could say it. Now, it took balls to do that. You know, you're my cousin, and I love you. You're you're like a sister from another mother. I know. So you, you can pull me up on this one. The, the One of the things that I took away from that, especially the sentence where it was okay, the white, it was okay for the white neighbors to think that they were learning a trade, but not academics or how to read and write. To me, that echoes to, to this day where people of color, but specifically African-Americans, it's okay if we're athletes, it's okay if we're entertainers. Hey. But to be taken seriously as academics, scientists, things you would need reading and writing to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Still not still not there yet. No. I'm I'm going to have to agree with you. No. I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. I never even looked at it like that when you look at athletes, you don't look at it as a trade. 
but you put mm-hmm. you pushed it out as a trade and they're okay with that you know oh yeah you you know you should go into basketball or yeah well you you know you're great at football i have a little nephew right now my my grand nephew this this young man i'm telling you he plays football right now his dad my my um my nephew so this would be my grand nephew his dad was very athletic and he's just grown he's growing up to be just as athletic as his father was um but i don't want his mother is like yeah he gonna learn too he gonna go to school he gonna get what he needs to know and all because i'm telling y'all i will not be shocked or surprised if you see messiah brown out there one day if you see that, because my nephew is everything. I love him to death. But I'm not just saying that because I love him. I'm saying it because it's true. My sister took them to go ice skating yesterday. First time he ever been on skates and he was speed skating. First time. And he was speed skating. So they're going to look at him at that as that what you're saying. Oh, you'll be a great athlete. Nah, we, we, we want that mind to be looked at. We want that we want that to be taken into consideration. And I never thought of it like that until you just said that. So you're absolutely right. So over a century later, there there are occupations that are cool for us to do or almost expected of us to do. And then mm-hmm. there's like, wait, what? I, I feel uncomfortable about this. You're you're not supposed to be in these spaces. Yeah, yeah. Um so again, that that was one of my takeaways. But I thought also that found again this this first part of chapter two interesting because she had the white son of her landlord or her grandmother's landlord and then they had a little a white neighbor who was a friend of hers who were allowed to kind of you know to also teach her as well but it was really she i i loved how she did it yeah (laughs) she said that they had to basically get their parent a parent's permission Mm -hmm. before they could actually do it Right. So the thing is, and and it's so funny because I like the fact when the lady just realized she couldn't teach them anymore. And she told her, she said, she's, they've learned all that they can learn from me. And, um, and then that's when the landlord got son started to teach. Um, by that time, the brother had died though. So it was really more or less teaching her and not a sister. Um, but yeah, the brother, she had the 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 son started teaching, but then they had that draft. Let me ask you, and I'm not sure where this is in the book, so I'm I'm getting ready to skip a little bit, but we can always go back. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a in that area, he was drafted. Do you realize that he was oh, yes. drafted? Mm-hmm. He was drafted. So. They didn't have a lot of black people trying to fight in the war at first. That's what I got. Did, did you, you pull me up on it? Did you get that a little bit? And to the point where then the, the he started writing the letters and they were like, yeah, we need to pull y'all in. That kind of, well, I guess that slightly confused me. Maybe that was a Southern thing. That's what I thought at first. And I thought, well, my own North Carolina two times great grandfather, George Washington Jossie, he couldn't wait. He he couldn't wait. He basically told his wife and kids, yeah, I, I'm going. I'm going to go fight with the North. I'll see you when I see you. Wow. So he Yeah, I wait. mean, it was just really weird, though, to, to see that. And I'm like, so they had to draft them in order for them to really be a part of it? Because I thought that was weird. Yeah, I may have to go back and, and reread that. But I did, what you're saying is sparking off a recollection of, I was a little bit confused. I wasn't expect. I was either confused by or I wasn't expecting that. Right, right, right. But it, I mean, overall, that the educational part, he definitely took her because then she ended up going to someone else and and the woman she got everything that she needed and it it helped her in the long run and she set up at least two schools in her lifetime yeah she had the first one and then there was a free school so then all of her students went to that then i think it was a couple of years later she had a school a night school for adults and then they set up a free school for that and she lost her pupils to, to that one 
So again, there was just a real hunger for it. And I think D, D Turner's touched on that, um, about celebrating you know, yeah. the, importance, the importance of learning in, in education, which is in respecting it, um, which is really important. Yeah. Um, but again, sticking with chapter three around page 15, again, this highlighted something that Kevin Levine, I believe it was him when he came on the show to talk about um, United States colored troops, that they, they immediately weren't paid the same money or the same salary as their, as their white counterparts. And that that, that really was a thing um, during that first period of black men fighting in the Civil War. And that still kind of takes my breath away a little bit. Oh, yes. I was actually reading this um, this comment that the lady Sandra said uh, as far as what we were talking about ahead. She says, but on the other side of the coin, now everybody pushes their kids now to college and not the trades. Do you know how much electricians and plumbers make? You're oh. absolutely right about that. They, they do push them. They push them to college. They don't push them towards the trades. But you got to remember, Sandra, these people, they weren't going in for a trade. They were going in for school. They just thought the the white people that saw them walking into her household thought they were going there for a trade. So, but that, but as far as what you were talking about, Brian, did you just freeze? Oh. <laughs> um, but as far as what you were just saying about the the wages and everything yeah it took them a long time and what got me from the wages is the fact that their white counterparts was sticking right beside them mm -hmm. they were like oh if they not getting paid we not getting paid ain't nobody getting paid y'all supposed to pay them like you pay us that was something that was played in um glory and they they spoke about that in glory and mm -hmm. apparently this was that was a very true thing that happened so yeah, because you know, a life on the a bullet is not going to distinguish between skin color, and a life is <laughs> you know a life on a battlefield is a life on the battlefield. So th I guess that's what really jarred me is like, wait, hold up, why is this group of soldiers getting half pay for doing exactly the same work or facing the same dangers as this group of soldiers who are getting full pay? I'm like, kind of, what's up with that? Right. Um, right. But yeah, as you say, because I can't remember if it was a colonel or a general, she she mentions him in the book. He was right there with the black soldiers going, uh, no, these, you know his name. Trobout. Tro Tro Trowbridge. Trowbridge. I, I, I actually love him. Him and Higginson. I love those guys. They were great. They were great. They gave, they, 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 they touched on something else that we're going to talk about later on as far as belief in what they were doing. And, mm -hmm. and it, it was just very strong for me. And again, look at what education, the door that that opened up for her. I can't remember. I think they were still on St. Simon's Island where she had just arrived. And the union, the, the union officer, as soon as he learned that she could read and write, that was it. She would, you know, <laughs> he just went straight to her. Yeah, I got stuff for you to do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it he was ready for her when he he was so in awe. He was he really really when other people came from the north, he introduced her. They he made sure that they made they met her. Miss King was t King Taylor. She was something else. <laughs> she was something else. She was a mover and a shaker. Mm -hmm. And even though there wasn't a lot about what she faced as a nurse, as a battle nurse, because that's a whole specialism in and of itself. Um, she really was, you know, she and women like her really were kind of like the, the American Florence Nightingales. And I really feel as though she, both, you know, Susie, Susie Taylor King and women like her should be as well known and on par with, with Florence Nightingale. You're absolutely right. You're at, but then that's something that we kind of talk about every time we get on the show. <laughs> when we get on, especially when we do shows like this. Every every person that we've ever discussed, they all need to be talked about. They all need to be. All of their history needs to be, you know, told and and pointed out. And none of that I'm, is happening. 
because the other thing that I really love about Susie is her kind of can-do attitude. Again, I think it was Trowbridge or it was another officer. He's like, yeah, can you do X, Y, and Z? And she's basically, I can almost hear her go, honey, whatever you need me to do, just tell me and it's done. Yeah. And I mean, but it's not even almost hearing her. She kind of said that in the book. Mm-hmm. She actually kind of pointed that out. She was like, I'm here to do whatever they need. What, what, whatever it is that they need, I'm here to do it. And she did it. She cooked, she sewed, she, she, she taught, she, she, she helped the doctor, assisted the doctor at every turn. She, she did all of those things. They even had her learning how to take a gun apart, how to clean a gun, put it back together, how to shoot yeah. the gun, load the gun. So I, I really, I love her for that. It's yeah. just her, you know, whatever you need me to do, just just ask and you don't even have to worry about it. it it's done. So D. Turner says the black soldiers were given most, was given the most dangerous jobs, the digging out of encampment and fighting off the vermin of the coastal islands existence. And they knew the sea island terrain and were advanced scouts. Sojourner Truth was a base scout soldier. That may be so for some instances, but I did not get that from this. Mm-mm. It was a there. This particular book pointed out an equality amongst those men that whatever the black man did, the white man did too. It was it was. Um, if you haven't, I, I'm gonna say it again. If you have not read the book, you have to read it because it definitely, from her, from her point of view. There was no separate, nothing was separate between them. Nothing. And everybody was one. And they worked together and they loved their colonel, both black and white, and they loved each other. Especially when you get to the South Carolina bit, which we're just just about to get into, the Confederate soldiers were slitting the black men's throats as much as they were slitting the white soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, but then that's something that that happens anyway. When they felt like you were being a traitor. What I'm saying is they they weren't slitting the throat of ditch diggers. Right, exactly. They were were slitting the throats of soldiers. Exactly, exactly. And and, and that's that's just what it was. It wasn't, they didn't care who it was. They just wanted to take them out. So I, I really, even though I know that there were some places where they did that with the most dangerous jobs, still to digging out the ditches or anything, this particular camp, I don't think they did that. I don't think it was like that. I think that it was an equal thing. And if it was a black soldier that was digging out ditch, then a white soldier was right beside him doing it. They all did this. They all did this work. And you got that from what she saw. So... So now we're going to segue into chapter nine, the capture of Charleston, because that blew my mind. I assumed that Charleston was burnt by the Union Army. And I I can't tell you why I thought that, but that's kind of what I took away from my, I just thought that. I can tell you why you thought that, because that's what we were taught. We were taught that once they, even, I mean, because I can remember it as early as, going to Edgefield one time for something and they talked about how Edgefield couldn't be burned by the Union Army because they were so badass. So <laughs> I gotta love them. But nevertheless, you know, that's the thing. That that was the Edgefield life. And they couldn't they couldn't get to them, but they got to all of the rest of them. Now I'm starting to wonder was that the Union Army that supposedly burned all these places down? Or was this the rebels? Because she sure made it. She she said it. I'm going to read her exact words. Please. <laughs> On February 28th, 1865, the remainder of the regiment were ordered to Charleston. As there were signs of the rebels evacuating that city, leaving Cold I- leaving Coal Island. Weird, I researched that place too. We arrived in Charleston between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. See, her recollections are vivid. And found that the Rebs, which is in quotes, had set fire to the city and fled, leaving women and children behind to suffer and perish in the flames. So not the Union Army. Yeah. Which again is 
I'm I'm not going to give my age away, but 30 plus something years in terms of high junior high school and high school history lessons, I thought that the Union burnt Charleston. That's how they taught it. So I'm sitting here reading that first paragraph like, what? Yeah. I, I was the same way. I was like, so it wasn't the Union Army that did it. It was rebels. So and gonna... again, it took me it took me to that point. Well, was it the rebels that burned the rest of the places? Mm-hmm. Indeed. I'm not going to read the full paragraph, but there's another, I'm going to lead up to a bit that I want people to think about. So she's talking about the, the fire had been burning fiercely for a day and a night. Um, and then she's talking about when they landed and what they were doing and how they put out the fire. That So it said for three or four days, the men fought the fire. So this thing, must, I mean, Charleston must have been in, an inferno, just mm. engulfed in flames. If it took them that long. So then she's talking about it was a terrible scene. Um, again, they've been fighting for a couple of days, saving the property and effects of the people. Yet these white men and women could not tolerate our Black Union soldiers, for many of them had formerly been their slaves. And although these brave men risked life and limb to assist them in their distress, men and even women would sneer and molest them whenever they met them. So they just saved, you know, they, they stopped an entire city from burning to the ground that the union apparently did not set a light. That was their own side that did it. And you're going to harass and harangue and belittle the very people that just saved your city from burning, completely burning. Yeah, that's why God placed me in the time zone that he did. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> leads up to your Hamburg, because that same page is talking about the Hamburg business. So let me tell y'all something. <laughs> let me tell y'all something. Hamburg is not far from the Edgefield area. And according to them, I was trying to find it. I cannot find it. But according to them, um, as they were then had to trudge to another area, as they were doing it at the at nighttime, they had what they were called bushwhackers that were coming out and slicing the throats of the Union soldiers. And they had to catch them doing it, but they couldn't catch them doing it. They, I think they finally did catch one, and, and according to the book, but they had to catch them doing it. Y'all, that's where my family's from. That's that's that that's that Edgefield, that's that Edgefield area. Those were some crazy people. So <laughs> when I read that, I'm not even gonna sit here and lie to y'all and tell y'all that I didn't, I didn't giggle a little bit because I'm like. That's that's where we come. That's that's our, that's us again. I don't care if it's black or white. At that time, it it was more than likely the white um family members, but it's still it, it it's just amazing how Edgefieldians are, and that whole area is just amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yep. That was a very very good comment from D. Yeah, we read it in high school. So again, appreciate that we're kind of jumping around. And by all means, you know, if you guys, if a part of the book really resonated with you, or you know, you you learn something new. If you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube, YouTube, feel free to pop those into the comments, and we will happily happily talk about those. Um, I'm going to jump to chapter 10, page 41, and I actually bought a Kindle version of this, so I apologize if my page numbering isn't kind of matching up with yours. This is the real meat of the book that I really wanted to spend the rest of the um, hour talking about. So it's what are you going on? Her expectations for the future, about huh. how, about black and white kind of living together. So this passage on page 41, chapter 10, kind of kicks it off. And I think, again, it's Trowbridge who's giving this, this address. <sighs> Sorry, I've got I've to breathe as I read this. Now that, in this, again, white general, 
or military officer to um to the African Americans. Now that you are to lay aside your arms, I adjure you by the associations and history of the past and the love you bear for your liberties to harbor no feelings of hatred towards your former masters, but to seek in the pause of honesty, virtue, sobriety, and industry, and by a willing obedience to the laws of the land to grow up to be the full stature of American citizens. I felt he was saying that to the wrong people. I mean, I agree with you. He was saying it to the wrong people, but he didn't know, sadly. And and like you said, this is the meat of the book because this is where even today, some of the things that he said in his letter resonates, number one, with the things that are going on. And number two, when we talk about our Caucasian sisters and brothers. If you read his letter, he believed in what he was fighting for. He believed in it strongly, wholeheartedly. not just wholeheartedly, not just him, but also the people that um, that was fighting alongside him. So we have to make sure that we understand that there is a difference, that they, there are some really bad people out there, but then there are some really good people out there. And she was adamant in pointing out that they were like a family in so many words. That whole 33rd was like a family and you couldn't do one, something to one without having to do it to the others. And he 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 solidified that in his letter at the ending of the war and them separating as a regiment he solidified that family that and he was like now you're going to be able to go and do the exact same things that my children can do and sadly it, it ain't the same today but he believed that because he did what he did because he fought for what he fought for that now my black brothers and sisters gonna be able to do the same thing as my white counter as the white counterparts. No, I agree. And it I just be- I just really feel as though that message should have been read out from in every place of worship, whatever form of pulpit they had. That's I mean, the but would it have mattered if that wasn't their belief? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 just be honest. One of the beliefs of those who were the bad people was that the South was going to rise again and look at what's happening. But am I wrong in thinking that preachers back in this time period, they had a disproportionately powerful sphere of influence? So you can imagine maybe not everyone would have agreed with them, but if the perception was that religion was now behind black and white being equal, no reprisals against formerly enslaved people, you know, let's move forward as one country, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have resonated with everyone and not everyone would have come along for that journey. But I'm thinking most church going folk or synagogue going folk or whatever the religious denominations were back in the day that maybe enough of them would have heard that message to actively push back against those whose hearts were still full of hatred. Right. This is an interesting comment by um, Missy, Missy Brandt. She said, many did join on their, on, on their own accord. We have the reports from union records and journalists that corroborates with Susie King Taylor's account of the burning of Darien Museum on one raid of Macintosh to liberate, they ordered the local men to stay on St. Simon's and not go. Half the regiment hid on the ship until the departed so they could find, go find their families. With that said, we used her book recently to verify an encampment location of the first South Carolina. But you know what? I remember reading that in this book. I remember that discussion about going in and sending their families off or telling them that they had to leave. And I actually remember that. And that's awesome to know that you're you're using it to do the things that you're doing. But 
I guess it leads to, well, I'll wait until we get finished and then we'll go into that stuff. <laughs> so then Trowbridge continues, the church, the schoolhouse, and the right forever to be free are now secure to you. And every prospect before you is full of hope and encouragement. Well, what did I say to you in the green room? The church and the schoolhouse, those are the two places that are kind of have been sacrosanct to African-Americans and the two places where people come for us. How many, how many African-Americans have been murdered in a church? Look at all of the, look at all of the who, you know, the furore that happened in the civil rights about desegregating schools. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just amazing how the, you just pointing out how the books, it's like they, um, <clears throat> they spoke our future mm-hmm. and, and not even know it. Then the next put, the nation, the United States of America, the nation guarantees to you full protection and justice. Mm. What are we still fighting? What is the whole last 18 months to two years? I mean, I know it's been going on for longer than that, but I'm just going to, I'm doing really, really contemporary stuff. What have we been fighting and marching and protesting about for the last two years? I swear. Those words right there. So Dee put a comment up. She said, why do we believe that Union soldiers or leaders were really trying to liberate Blacks as opposed to just winning the right to run things? The Southern white loss to the Northern white slavery was slavery was but one commodity in the spoils of war. Again, Dee, this book doesn't push that. This book doesn't push that at all. And and I don't know if, if you've read it or not, but this book really shows how those Union soldiers was about liberation. Those the ones that Susie, the ones that, that, Susie, that Susie dealt with. Yes. Dealt that, with. that, yeah. the, and I'm talking about them, the 33rd, mm-hmm. they were about liberation and the people that she came across, because remember Susie traveled, she, she was sure a traveler. Did. So the people that she came across, they were about liberation. All of the colonels that was a part of the, the lieutenants, the sergeants, they were about liberation. The the, the senator in um, Shreveport, he was about liberation. I, I, I don't, I personally, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't think, I think that during that time, all of them were about liberation. It wasn't about power because power wasn't, we we didn't need, we didn't even know the concept of power back then in my opinion they just wanted to be free that was it they just wanted to be able to move forward and get what they needed to get just like the next man if this is where i am then i want to be i want to be treated just like the next person is that's where i want to be i don't want all of I'm not tripping off all that. If I if I'm smart enough to be a senator, then allow me to be a senator. If I just need to be a ditch digger, then that's what I'm gonna be a ditch digger. Let me be that ditch digger. But just let me be. And I feel like all of them during that time were like that because we've come across so much different research that shows. I mean, look at after during the Reconstruction era, how they just these people they. They, they were free and they set off running. And the first things that they did, they set up schools. They made sure that their kids were educated, that these things were going to happen. So I really don't, I don't see that. But that's just my opinion. Well, again, thinking about it, um, that didn't come up in, Ke- I didn't get a sense of that in Kevin Levine's book. I'm not denying that there perhaps were opportuni- opportunists in the union. Of course. Of course, it's life. It's, it's, it's human nature. It's human nature, it's, right. It's life. But I didn't get a sense of that in Kevin Levine's book. And I guess people can say that historians cherry pick what they want to. But we have that other conversation with the battle of, was it New Market or High Market in Virginia? New, new Market, New Market. And again. New Market Heights. If anything, white officers dismissed black men's capability of fighting to begin with. But again, with Kevin Levine and I can't remember the guest name who who talked about Newmarket, 
our people won their admiration and their respect. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And indeed, this isn't about who. Let's stay. Let's stay focused. This isn't about who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in the Civil War. This this is about this particular book and what she saw and her recollection of things that happened during that time. So we have to be, you know, honest about that. I, I don't I, I think you're leaning towards a whole nother conversation, whereas this is really mainly about what was written in 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 this book and her recollection of the Civil War, her life during that time, who she was as a person, and so on and so forth. So true. Because <clears throat> again, it doesn't really come out in this book. I you know, I'm aware that there were foot soldiers in the Union Army who um they, they didn't sign up to free African Americans. They signed up to hold the Union together. You know, they managed to separate that. But what Johnny is saying and what I'm saying as well is in terms of this book and Susie's history and the commentary that she has, I don't get a sense of any of that. Within, no. Within, within her sphere. No, no, I don't. And Darius, I think your your ancestor was mentioned in the book. Didn't they talk about an Isaiah Brown in the book? I believe they did. Yeah. So you may want to definitely look at that book if you have if you haven't you know done that yet. You and may if you are a king with ties to either Saplo, Saint Simons, or Butler's Island, you will also want to read the book. Edward King, her husband, doesn't get much of a mention, but there, there is a little bit about him and, and it's specifically his service that, that's in the book. Um, and again, kind of continuing towards um, the latter part of the book, chapter 11, page 46, she's talking about, this is the, now we're in the 1872, yeah, 1872 period when she starts, now think about everything that she's done. If you've read the book, you know, you know that she was a nurse and did everything that she that she was asked to do with the grandmother that she had, who was entrepreneurial. I believe her mother was also entrepreneurial. So she had a she had a wide skill set. What does she do to put money on the table, money and uh, food on the table? This bugs me. This, this really, really bothers you. <laughs> she goes back to being a laundress and a cook. It really bothers you. It but bothers me. It was, but the the thing is, is that that's that's the life that happened, and I guess that goes into these comment that she just, you know, that she put up, that she read it, and liberation was fought in vain, though. Liberating what? If it was about that, then why were blacks ne neglected after the Civil War and Reconstruction was so short lived? And basically, Susie did kind of go into that because it started to bother her. I and and I got that. I got. I don't know if you got that from the book, but mm -hmm. it did start to mm -hmm. bother her. But again, it was bothering her about the South, not about the North, because that was something that you and I discussed in the green room, how Massachusetts was Mecca for black people during that time period. They were treated equally. They didn't have any issues or problems. And now? Yeah, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Because Massachusetts is not that any longer. And, and so, yeah, she did go in to some of those things, but she pointed it directly at the South. She was actually talking about the start of the Jim Crow era. That's what she was. I mean, did ask a good question. Well, what happened? And I'm going to use a historical analogy and I'm going to call it appeasement. What happened with the destruction of Reconstruction wasn't anything different than what Chamberlain did in Britain, trying to negotiate peace with warlike Germans. Hmm. If, I give, if I just give you this little bit, I hope you're going to be content with that, and you're not going to destroy all of Europe. And well, we kind of know what kind of know what happened happened there. Um, appeasement doesn't work, and the, you know the North tried to appease the South, try to get this back to being a, a, a united Union, and that was done at the expense of Black people. It was. Um, it really was. To not put too fine a point on it, um, were the sacrificial lambs before, so why we wouldn't continue to be in that time period, um, I don't know. But yeah, that did. Her working as a, everything that she had done, she had been teaching, she was an articulate, 
intelligent woman. I get a sense, I get, I, I get the feeling that she had a good sense of humor too. I, I think we would have, we would have had a good laugh to go back to that, to cooking and being a laundress for for a rich family. Because actually on the next page, which is the beginning of chapter 12, that's what I would have seen for her. You know, she's talking about all the things that she did as part of the women, the Women's Relief Corps, uh, which really takes a lot of administrative skills. And again, we were talking about this before the show. Thinking about her skill sets in terms of a manager or an administrator, and then you go back and you reread the stuff that she did in the camps. She was a good administrator. And they did have women administrators back in the day. Yeah. Um, and something that I wanted to mention, because you just touched on it really quickly, Donya, is for the time period, a woman traveling on her own was not an easy thing to do. And I imagine being a Black woman traveling on your own was going to be even more challenging than that. And this, the, Susie went everywhere, between Boston, all over Georgia, down to Florida, where was it? Um, Shreveport, Louisiana. Then she's up in Tennessee. Then she's back. In, I mean, she was moving around all over the place. Yeah. You know, and that, that takes a level of fortitude. Right. Sharon Bruno disagreed with me about the power part. And I actually get what she's saying. She says, I disagree. I truly believe that we knew power and understood it. This is why we immediately went towards those things that gave us power, education, voting positions in office, land ownership. And you might be right. That could be why that could be um, a part of the thought process. It also could be that they just wanted to be able to do what everybody else was doing too. So I, I mean, it, it's a lot, and I, I'm ne- I'm definitely not going to go against what you just said because that could be, that could definitely very well be that if you're smart enough to know to go towards education, voting, and all that, then you're smart enough to know that that's what it's going to give you in the long run. But I still don't think that they did it simply because they wanted power. I I still feel like they did it because they just wanted to be treated equally. And And, if I look at my ancestry, I always assumed that they did it because they wanted acceptance. They wanted white acceptance. What was white acceptance? Education, property, self-sufficiency. Oh, okay, we have this national narrative. I'm sure that they didn't use this phrase back in the day, but you know, bootstrapping, pulling oneself up by one's boots. Now, how how a formerly enslaved person was supposed to do that after multiple generations of enslavement? Exactly. Who had nothing, owns nothing. In slavery, didn't even own the rights to their own body. That's always been the biggest mystery to me. How yeah. anyone thought that millions of enslaved people were just going to pick up freedom and know what to do with it? There wasn't a home economics course. There wasn't a freedom 101 this is this is how you live as a free person there was no transition literally you were a slave and then you weren't and then you weren't Uh, yeah (laughs) then you weren't that's exactly what happened so they they had the you know they they from the moment they stepped foot on this land they had to constantly um adjust it was a constant adjust Mm -hmm. and i i really feel like during that time period, there was no such thing as pulling one up by their bootstraps because, like you said, they had nothing to pull. They didn't have a bootstrap to pull. So they had to pull each other. And then somewhere down the line, we lost that. And so now everybody think they're doing everything on their own nowadays. You got these young kids that think they're doing everything on their own when in actuality, you wouldn't be where you are today without these people who did what they did. And not only that, you wouldn't be where you are today where, and if they didn't, you know, help each other. And I think that was part of the pushback in a time period. And again, just going on my ancestry and, and your ancestry, you know, I see the, that early generation of freed people. It's like, okay, well, okay, we own land. We pay taxes. Our kids are getting educated. We're just as good as you. And then mm-hmm. 1898 rolls around with all the with all the voter registration massacres mm-hmm. going on. Uh, no, you're not. It's like I don't know who put that idea in your head, but mm-hmm. you, better get, you better get yourself straight. You are not. And uh, I want to go ahead. But I I think that that's some of the importance that 
our ancestors were associating with things like land and paying taxes. Yeah. And she pointed out, you know, because I can't believe this show is we're five minutes out. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I, I lied to you not. I lied to you not. But I, I really hope that if you haven't read it, that you're going to pick it up. I did put the link on in the comments. And I also, and I'll put it, throw it back up real quick as far as on, on the banners as well. But this is a free book to get. You guys really definitely need to get this book because I'm telling you, she touched on land and how much land people purchased and, you know, and how they were just, they were just dropping that. They was, they were able to get this land in so many different ways. I think she talked about one person that had hundreds of acres at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she she, she, dis- she discussed all of those things. So the one thing that really got me was the song America. That thing blew me. That thing blew me out the water. Mm-hmm. Well, the last thing that I'm going to mention was on page 51. And again, think of the, the two trials that we have just had, the Kenosha trial and the Ahmaud Arbery trial. In this, and she put this in quotes, land of the free, that's touching on Damia saying, "Mm, she's getting a bit of attitude Mm -hmm. towards the end of her life. In this, the land of the free, we are burned, tortured, and denied a fair trial, murdered for any imaginary wrong conceived in the brain of the Negro-hating white man. When did she write this book? And what are we going through now? In 1902, and who said something similar to that not too long before her? Frederick Douglass, when he talked about how there were 72, that's something that sticks in my head, how there were 72 crimes in the state of Virginia and that that was, uh, that was caused for death. But a black man would, be, would die from all 72 crimes, but a white man would only die from three of them. When I tell you that, just that has been burned in my head. That was a part of his speech for July 4th. And, and you know, so you guys really read the book, listen to the speech from um, uh, Frederick Douglass, because the speech is everything. It is, it's everything. It's an essay and it's everything. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed this book. I really do, because it was awesome for us. And I'm going to say if there's any teachers or history teachers out there, specifically high school history teachers, this is a perfect book. There is nothing, you know, it's easy to read. It's quick to read. It's a really good overview of the periods. There's nothing graphic or upsetting apart from the history that's being relayed. Um, Consider it. Yes, this is definitely a book that can that can be put into high schools without a doubt. Did you want to talk about why the um, the America song was so important? Well, why, why that resonated with you? Because you made a really well, good point. On that. Well, I mean, I just always thought that the songs during that time period were always based on white men, it, it, not even white women, white men. That's it. It was always based on that. But if you really look at the all of the um the lyrics to to that song America My Country Tis of Thee that song is not it's it that should be the national anthem not the Star Spangled Banner <laughs> I mean if you're gonna make something a national anthem that it, it's only two songs that I've ever heard that can actually you know fit for everybody and that's that and the Negro National Anthem they both they literally fit for everyone and yeah that's why i was just blown away so and it's interesting because i'm actually looking at that quote now um i think that's page 51 and she's candid i do not uphold my race when they do wrong they ought to be punished but the innocent are made to suffer as well as the guilty and i hope the time will hasten when it will be stopped forever yes yes i i highlighted that (laughs) <laughs> I actually highlighted. <laughs> so, okay, we're like 10 seconds out. So next Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on E360 TV, we will be talking about finding lost enslaved family using the Freedmen's newspaper advertisements. 
Yes. So again, um, we love you guys and thank you so much for, you know, for joining us. I'm Donya. I'm Brian. And you guys have a great, great Sunday. Enjoy. See you next week. <laughs>